The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And I'm Crystal Kim, crypto reporter at Bloomberg, filling in for Mike Regan. And this week on the show, Wall Street forecasters have been saying all year that a slowdown in the bull market will be in the cards, thanks to any number of reasons. The average projection for the S&P 500 at the end of 2022 represents a mere 3% advance from current levels. We'll get into all of that with a first-time guest. But first, Crystal, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. A lot to be grateful for joining you on this podcast, the endless number of pies waiting to be eaten, and of course, what'll be served up hot at Thanksgiving. Um, this year is the conversation. From what I read, seems like the talk around the turkey will be crypto. Um, Macy's is into NFTs, so is the NFL and Odell Beckham Jr. Martha Stewart is into it. Quentin Tarantino is into it. NFTs have become an all-encompassing subject, and it'll be fun to discuss. Maybe we can get into all of that with our guest as well. I want to bring in Candice Bangsend. She's a portfolio manager of global asset allocation at Fiera Capital in Montreal. Candice, thanks so much for joining us this week. Hey, thanks for having me. Just to start out, I'm hoping you can just lay out your strategy for us, what sectors and areas of the market you're favoring right now, and then how you're starting to think about 2022 as the year closes out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our base case scenario is calling for a reflationary recovery. This is essentially an extension of the post-pandemic recovery that inevitably uh, results in an extended period of strong and above-trend global growth. Now, in our base case, um, this visibility of the cycle is extended, um, given that policymakers take a very measured and gradual approach to policy normalization um, and essentially supporting the economy going forward. So this is very much a supportive backdrop for financial markets and particularly stocks over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, Obviously, you know, there's been talk about the global economy, um, you know, moderating here, but the fact of the matter is that it has peaked at a very elevated levels, and, um, you know, like I said, will remain strong and above trend um, without the fear of, you know, premature and aggressive policy normalization that would derail that recovery going forward. So we remain quite constructive on the global economic outlook. Um, We think the dovish reaction function from central banks and the increased tolerance for higher inflation will allow for that more cautious and uh, gradual approach to policy normalization in the coming 12 to 18 months. And together, this will, um, again, create um, a, a a favorable backdrop for stocks versus bonds. Now, that being said, we do expect a more 
challenging environment for equities in the next uh, in the coming year. Uh, we've obviously come off a very strong period of um, outperformance and and very robust results in the global equity landscape since the the lows of March 20, but also here in 2021 alone. And our sense is that you know there's fewer obvious catalysts that will push equity markets significantly higher from here. And that the fundamental tailwinds that supported equity markets in the last 18, 19 months have deteriorated somewhat. And as a result, you know, while we don't expect a recession or a bear market for that matter, uh, we do expect more muted and volatile equity market returns going forward after the extended stretch of um, gains since those, um, those March 2020 lows. So here are a couple factors to think about, um, you know, given um, our outlook. I mentioned, um, you know, the fundamental backdrop. And our sense is that when we go down the list, the downside risks are beginning to outweigh the potential for positive surprise, uh, particularly given that much of the good news uh, pertaining to the macro backdrop has likely um, been priced in at these elevated levels. And this, in our view, could leave some scope for more volatility, disappointment, um, unwanted volatility, um, should something go awry. So on the fundamentals front, I mentioned the strong recovery. Earnings have been soaring. But our sense is that, you know, the strong recoveries have likely already been discounted. And this comes on the heels of an environment of rising input prices, inflation, um, rising wages um, as the job market continues to recover. All of this has the potential to squeeze profit margins. So some vulnerability on the profit front. And I think most critically is on the policy front. Um, and we've passed the point of peak stimulus. And this is going to um, create some uncertainty and some unwanted volatility as policymakers transition from that extremely accommodative stance towards something less accommodative and incrementally so. And while we're not moving to restrictive policy um, or even neutral uh, for, you know, for that matter in the next year, um, that shift from extreme accommodation to something less supportive typically um, does inject a little bit of um, volatility in the market. So taken together, um, you know, those factors, whether it's buoyant earnings expectations, intensifying pressure on margins, um, and limited scope for further PE expansion, um, you know, basically has, um, you know, a, a, given us the, um, you know, an opportunity to take some profits and, a, and adopt a more uh, neutral stance on equity markets for, for the time being. Candice, you said so many great things, and I, I want to get into like every element of what you've said, but I want to start at the top with... Um, with your uh, stance, um, your economic base case of a reflationary recovery, I was wondering if this week's market events thus far affirm your view. Namely, I'm referencing the largely anticipated continuity in Fed leadership and thus the continuity of the Fed's posture. Absolutely. I think the um, the outcome of the nomination process has reinforced that base case for a reflationary recovery. Essentially, like you said, um, you know, given that, um, you know, Powell is, you know, back in the chair position for another four years, um, really for us, um, you know, reinforces the 
um, status quo um, from that perspective. So a little bit more vi visibility uh, on, on that front. So again, consistent with, um, you know, the narrative where policymakers do adopt or, um, you know, take that uh, more pragmatic approach to policy normalization. So encouraging in, in that respect. And then Candice, I was hoping you would sort of walk us through your thinking about some areas of international markets that you might be preferring right now. In particular, I think in one of your recent notes, you said you like Canadian stocks and Japanese stocks. So if, if you wouldn't mind just going over how you're thinking about things internationally. Yeah. So while we're neutral overall from an equity perspective, we do see uh, particular pockets of opportunity in um, you know, certain corners of the market, namely the cyclical value space. So as we all know, you know, the growth defensive stocks have done extremely well um, with interest rates, you know, uh, tumbling to rock bottom levels. This has basically uh, boosted the valuations of these growth, talk, uh, growth stocks, particularly in the tech space um, over the last, um, you know, 18 or 19 months. And a lot of that was a result of all of the liquidity that was being injected into the market by central banks, um, you know, back during the depths of the pandemic. Now, with earnings um, acting as more of a driver, the global economy is on solid ground. Um, inflation obviously accelerating. Interest rates are rising in response. We expect um, that rotation from the growth towards the value space to take hold. And this is where we see an opportunity going forward uh, from a valuation perspective alone. Um, you know, it looks like a, a favorable uh, backdrop for these. Um, you know, cyclical value cor corners of the market. So when you think about um, steeper yield curves, boosting financial stocks, um, higher commodity prices across the board, boosting the resource sectors, um, this essentially um, underscores our preference for Canadian stocks, given the composition of the Canadian stock market, which is about two thirds of um, these value oriented cyclical sectors of the market. So that's how we play that um, you know, cyclical value opportunity within uh, the global equity space. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I thought it was interesting that in your base case for stocks next year, for U.S. large caps specifically, you forecast a minus 12.5%. Um, a, a Canadian large cap is, is, does better than that. And I wondered if um, that bakes in the assumptions that value does better um, than growth in, in both regions. So the, the matrix that you're referring to and the expected returns are all in Canadian dollars. So the reason that uh, S&P 500 expectation looks so dire is because we expect the U.S. dollar to weaken in the next year and the Canadian dollar to strengthen. So that's actually the currency impact you're seeing there. Uh, when it comes to the S&P 500, though, um, we have exceeded our target. We have a 4,600 uh, target. So the, the total return is still negative. 
uh, or the total expected return. And we still expect some modest upside in Canadian stocks. So it's a relative play between Canada and the U.S. And like I said, from a valuation perspective, the Canadian market has rarely traded this um, at the size of a discount to the U.S. And given that composition and the value-oriented bias of the TSX, uh, we think this is um, you know, offering more compelling opportunities for equity upside going forward. And then as Crystal mentioned, we did have the Powell news earlier this week, but the other news that's sort of also happening in the background and happening internationally is the rise in COVID cases, especially in Europe and some of the headlines that we're seeing there. So I'm wondering how you're thinking about that. I know JP Morgan had a note out earlier this week saying that this new wave is unlikely to be a material problem for stocks. So how are you thinking about it? Yeah, so I think it adds to that um, narrative where the risks are mounting at a time when, you know, the markets are largely pricing a lot of good news. Um, while we don't think that these subsequent waves of the coronavirus will derail the economic expansion, um, it is something that we need to monitor because, of course, it could um, stall the recovery, like I said, but not to derail it altogether, whether it's given the high vaccination rates, the um, the fact that, you know, hospitalizations, mortalities have um, remained very subdued even in the um, in the wake of these subsequent waves. This tells us that we're not likely to see that 2020 recession scenario, um, even in the wake of more stringent countermeasures. Uh, but that being said, it is something that I think you'll see more, um, you know, from a, a financial market volatility perspective. Again, just something for investors to contemplate. Um, and like I said, the potential for whether it's, you know, you know, some lockdowns or, uh, you know, fear of, um, you know, traveling or going out again. If you get some of that, um, you know, that um, deterioration in confidence, that could potentially uh, dampen growth, kind of similar to what we saw in the third quarter um, of this year. Um, but nonetheless, we don't expect that to derail or um, to impact our base case scenario. But I think, like I said, you'll see it more through um, the lens of um, the financial markets and volatility, um, you know, as these headlines, um, you know, hit the hit the screen. Going back to your uh, base case of a reflationary recovery, I thought it interesting that um, your firm put it at a 50 percent probability, if I have that right. Um, what would have to happen to give y'all greater than a coin toss conviction um, about a reflationary recovery? Yeah, so the the difference between our top two scenarios really hinges on the policymaker response. So in that reflationary recovery scenario, we're essentially assuming that that, um, you know, that dovish bias from central banks and that tolerance for inflation to run above target for an extended period of time um, allows for a slower, more gradual approach to policy normalization. And like I said, that's essentially, um, you know, what has reinforced our strong outlook for the global economy and, of course, um, you know, financial markets broadly. Now, the risk to that scenario is if policymakers basically step in prematurely, um, start to panic, given some of these elevated inflation numbers that we've been seeing, and start to tighten monetary policy, in our view, something that would be prematurely. This would, in 
in response likely dampen the recovery, if not derail it altogether. And that's, I think, um, the policy error that people should be thinking about. You know, you've, I've seen a number of headlines about the policy error being allowing inflation to run at these levels without stepping in. I think the policy error at this point would be stepping in prematurely and derailing the recovery at a time when it is still um, vulnerable. What happens to U.S. stocks if that happens? Stock markets in general um, would sell off in that in that um, stagflationary scenario. So that's what uh, that second scenario that you're referring to is stagflation. And in that scenario, um, it's um, an unfortunate outcome, not only for stocks, but also for bonds, because, of course, interest rates would be rising uh, quite uh, aggressively as well. So um, very much a risky scenario for financial markets in general. And it all really hinges on that policy response, which is very difficult to uh, forecast, to navigate. Um, you know, you see a lot of different headlines, many different policymakers speaking, um, you know, some more hawkish than others. That's why those probabilities are so close because there is very much um, a lot of uncertainty as to how um, this will all shake out in the next 12 to 18 months. I'm glad you mentioned that, but you did steal my question because I was going to ask you if you and your team have projections for what we can expect for interest rate hikes from the Fed. I know John Authors of Bloomberg Opinion had a column this week saying it's a little bit perplexing the way the markets reacted to the Powell renomination because Brainerd actually tends to vote in the same way that Powell does. So how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, when it comes to the trajectory for um, Fed funds, we are much more dovish than the market. Um, following the um, renomination of Chair Powell, markets are pricing, I believe, close to five rate hikes over, um, you know, 2022, 2023, which we think is overdone. Um, given the, um, you know, given again the the, the narrative where policymakers um, will take that cautious approach. Um, we expect um, only one rate hike uh, from the Fed in 2022, obviously in the back half, because of course, by the mid, uh, midway through 2022, um, our sense is that inflation, those, uh, that acceleration will have receded. And while we still expect inflation to be sustainably above target, we think the focus then will shift to the labor market. And that's where there's still some significant slack. And that's also another precondition for policymakers to start uh, lifting rates, um, you know, from these rock bottom levels. So again, you know, when you bring in that bias to allow um, inflation to run at these levels for um, longer than may have typically been the case after 10 years of underperforming the inflation target, our sense is that policymakers will be in a position to take a slow approach to policy normalization. And therefore, you know, my um, my interpretation is that the markets um, are leaning a little bit too hawkish and have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves from a policy perspective. And we see that here in, in the Canadian market as well, a similar uh, a similar narrative. Right. It seemed to me that um, earlier this week, uh, um, uh, gold was backing off and the hedges were coming off. And and I, I wanted to ask you, what are good inflation hedges these days? 
I mean, I would say gold actually broke out of its downtrend here just in the last few weeks. I mean, it's been a tough year for gold in 2021. And, you know, investors are starting to uh, fret about that inflation outlook. And in the last few weeks, we've seen gold turn um, decidedly higher um, in response as investors seek that hedge in an inflationary environment. When, again, um, you know, if we're right and policymakers take a, a very a gradual and, you know, measured approach to policy normalization suggests that real interest rates are going to remain in negative terrain. And this is obviously also a tailwind for gold. Um, that being said, our view and at Fiera, um, you know, we feel that real assets, um, you know, such as real estate, agriculture, infrastructure provide um, the best hedge um, to inflation over the long term. Um, you know, we expect inflation will remain above that 2% target, not only in the next 12 to 18 months, but over the next three, four years as well. So this just really, um, you know, reinforces the need for real assets in uh, a well-balanced portfolio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's interesting you mentioned those things because I've been I had actually been working on a story for Business Week about some of the best inflation hedges and people had mentioned farmland to me and they mentioned yep. cattle and things like that. Some of the, these things I frankly had never heard of as inflation hedges before. And then, Crystal, I know you and I haven't talked too much about your new beat yet, but you do cover crypto and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies come up quite a bit in this conversation. I don't know, Candice, if a lot of your clients are asking you about that as well. It just seems like this big hot topic these days. Yeah, it's definitely something we're seeing more in the headlines these days. Um, from an asset allocation perspective, we are not um, you know, deploying capital towards this asset class right now. Uh, lots of speculation built around that, and you know, very little in the way of tangible uh, value. So I think um, you know, for our, from our perspective, um, you know, not something that we're looking at, um, you know, proactively at this point. I hear you. I mean, though, if we're tapped out in terms of return or yield in traditional places, we've got to find them somewhere else. So, if not in crypto, where can we go? That is a fantastic question. And, you know, I've talked about a very challenging backdrop for both stocks and bonds in the coming year. Um, as I already mentioned, you know, while we don't expect a bear market, um, or a recession for that matter, the easy money has been made in in global stock markets. So those uh, similar uh, double-digit returns are going to be tough to come by going forward. At the same time, given our interest rate forecast, particularly at the long end of the curve, you know the expected returns in traditional bonds, which are supposed to be the you know the stability and the income generating aspect of the of a balanced portfolio. Um, you know, we're expecting negative returns and we've already seen minus 5% here in 2021 alone and expect something similar for 2022. So with that, you know, given the, you know, unfavorable return prospects in those 
traditional bond and equity asset classes, this really you know, reinforces the need to diversify a portfolio into the private alternative space. So this is where those um, real asset strategies come into play, whether it's real estate, agriculture, infrastructure, um, private lending, obviously you're getting that nice income stream and the stability um, of fixed income, but without the, um, well, like the negative return expectation and that, that we're expecting for traditional bonds given our expectation for interest rates. So I think these asset, these private alternative non-traditional sources of income will um, provide a very important part in a well-balanced portfolio from an income perspective, um, you know, without imploding the volatility of a well-balanced portfolio. These are typically more stable strategies, but importantly, they also have a low correlation to traditional asset classes. So in a well-balanced portfolio, they would tend to reduce your overall portfolio risk. And I want to ask you one more question before we get into our weirdest thing. And as Crystal mentioned at the top of the show, there's a lot to talk about uh, there in terms of Thanksgiving and crypto and all these other things happening this week. But the one thing we really haven't talked about yet is the state of the consumer. I know I get a lot of reports about holiday shopping trends. And then we also had earnings from the you know big box Walmarts and Targets and all of them have been passing cost increases onto the consumer and so on. So how much of everything is dependent on the state of the consumer and the well-being of the consumer? Well, our sense is that the the consumer continues to drive the recovery and is an instrumental source of, you know, a strong economy, particularly in the in the US, but also here in Canada and globally as well. And the good news is that the consumer right now does have some ammunition to rising prices. Uh, you look at the abundance of savings um, that have been stashed over the last, you know, several months um, that are ripe for spending as, you know, the consumer goes out and resu- resumes those normal activities, whether it's taking a vacation or, um, you know, spending more money on the services side, going out to restaurants, et cetera. Um, so our sense is that the consumer will continue to, you know, be a, a driving force uh, for the economy, at the same time, you know, the job market, in our view, will continue to improve. Wages will be um, on the rise already in some parts of the market. We're seeing some sizable wage gains. So all of this taken together, um, you know, reinforces um, our positive outlook for the, the back, backdrop for consumption. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. And I know I asked both of you to come prepared with some of the craziest or weirdest things you saw in markets this week. And I feel like we've hinted at a bunch of them already. But Crystal, I feel like you have like a big list of things that you've been watching all week. I hope you I hope you prove me right. Yes. um, I mean, it would be so easy to reach for the volcano bond. That's the world's first sovereign bond that will build a Bitcoin city. El Salvador plans to issue $1 billion in tokenized USD-denominated 10-year bonds. But that's not my weird thing of the week. My weird thing of the week is this thing called a Constitution DAO. That goes back to my crypto beat, this DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization. Think of it basically as a club born on the Internet. It's the AOL chat room of the future, but it has an agenda. So the Constitution DAO is a group of people who raised something like $47 million to buy a really old, really valuable physical copy of the Constitution. Spoiler alert, they failed. 
pretty fantastically. The private individual that outbid them turned out to be none other than hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin. But what was unusual to me, maybe no one saw it this way, but to me, the Constitution Dow effectively did a SPAC. They pooled some money to buy something. And in the Wall Street world, when a SPAC fails to fails on the promise of I'm going to buy a thing, people are generally disappointed and want their money back. Um, but in crypto world, this DAO failed to do this thing they set out to do. And in the wake of this failure, it would seem they have greater support to do something else. And that's my unusual thing of the week. I love this. And the the analysis of all of this and comparing it to SPACs, this is really good. Candice, I'm sorry, but this is like a really high bar, I feel like. <laughs> I was just going to say, Crystal, that uh, you set the bar extremely high, and I don't think I can match that. I've been sort of brainstorming here as we're as I was listening to your fascinating discovery there um, about some of the events uh, this week. And of course, I'm a boring strategist, so I just like think about the headlines that I've seen that sort of make me scratch my head a little bit and go, "Hmm, that's interesting." And um, I think one of the um, you know sort of perplexing market responses that I've seen this week is the renomination or the outcome of the renomination of Chair Powell. Um, I was quite surprised to see the markets respond in such a hawkish uh, fashion, given that it's essentially suggesting status quo, um, you know, for, for the Fed going forward. And, you know, by bringing uh, Brainard up to vice chair, um, you know, I you know, it, it seems to me that that's going to add a more dovish leaning bias at that vice chair position. So I was quite surprised to see the market adjust the way that it did following that announcement. Um, you know, looking at the rate hike expectations, I think, um, yeah, more than five rate hikes priced now by the end of 2023. So that seems a little bit overdone given that status quo, um, you know, situation at the Federal Reserve. And I think one more thing I'd point out, I know you only asked for one, but um, just something that's lingering in the um, in the background now is these, um, you know, tensions that have been emerging between oil consumers and producers, um, you know, obviously major consuming nations such as the U.S., but also in coordination with China, Japan, South Korea, India, um, all talking about uh, releasing strategic reserves to get those oil prices uh, down a little bit. But at the same time, you've got OPEC, um, you know, pushing back and even reportedly reconsidering um, their upcoming supply increase. So that'll be very interesting to, to watch going forward. And I think we'll just, um, you know, again, it, you know, inject a little bit more volatility into the crude markets after what's been a, a pretty strong rally. And the interesting thing to me about those headlines was just looking at the list of countries that the U.S. is working with. So we have all these tensions with China. And at the same time, the U.S. is working with China and, and Japan and South Korea and so on, on on making this happen. Yeah, no, it's a fully coordinated move, you know, and um, yeah, we'll have to see how everything um, shakes out. But I think there could be, um, you know, some volatility around those headlines here in the in the coming uh, weeks. Well, my craziest thing also has to do with crypto. So we're really crypto heavy on weirdest things again this week. It's just, it's so easy to find a lot of really interesting stuff there. But I was looking at the crypto.com deal to rename the Staples Center in LA. 
so that it bears the crypto.com name. And it seems like that has actually already paid for itself in some ways because the token for crypto.com has surged something like 50, 55% in the wake of that announcement, which is just, you know, it's, there's just so many huge moves happening in, in the crypto space when it comes to some of these tokens and, and some, frankly, that maybe we've never heard of before until they start making headlines. But I think Katie Greifeld put it best. She said, you know, this deal for the Staples Center to be renamed, it's a 20 year deal. And she said, I thought we were all supposed to be in the metaverse in 20 years. So <laughs> it's, it's really interesting to think about. It's been really great to have you both on the show and I'd love to have you back on in the future. Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. I know crypto is is your beat now, but uh, you, you do really well as a stock markets reporter too. Thank you. Thank you, Candice. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for one-upping me on the craziest things of the week, both of you. <laughs> Yours were good. Yours were really good too. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. That was great. Thanks again. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Vildana Hyrick. Crystal Kim is at Crystal Kim with three M's. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at at podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. What Goes Up is produced by the amazing Topher Forges. This is actually Topher's last week with us. Topher, thank you for all your amazing work and patience in dealing with Mike Regan all these years. We'll really, really miss you. And for everybody else, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.